Thank you, Alistair. Um, so we're going to be looking at the whole of uh, 1 Samuel 14, but it's a little bit long. So this little section nicely summarises the rest of the chapter as well. Uh, as we look at this, why don't we pray and ask God will help us to understand what he has to say to us today. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you that you speak to us through it. Please give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what you have to say to us today. Amen. All right. In 1993, there was a photographer named Kevin Carter and he travelled to Sudan to take pictures for the UN. Uh, He did this to generate interest and sympathy towards the war that was happening in the country and to help raise funds to provide aid and support for the people there. Kevin saw this as an opportunity to raise his profile as a freelance photographer and to become more successful in his career. Because of the war throughout the country, his trip did not go to plan. And there weren't actually many opportunities for him to take photographs because at the time that he went, a new series of conflicts started happening. It did not seem like he would even be able to leave the first city that he visited. Soon, however, an opportunity arose and he ended up flying with his guide and their bodyguards to the city of Aod uh, with a food aid drop. While he was there, he spent time taking photos and uh, taking photos of victims of the famine uh, and of the war. He was shocked by what he was seeing. Right before he left, he took this photo, which you might recognise. This photo is called The Vulture and the Little Girl. It's a shocking and confronting photo and it captures the famine uh, and the rest of the situation that was happening in Sudan. It's crazy. Carter took this photo. He chased the vulture away, but then he had to leave. Later, it was discovered that the young person in the photo is actually a boy and that they did make it to the UN Food Bank. This trip shook Carter to his core, but he certainly made a name for himself. His photo was published in the New York Times, and he won the Pulitzer Prize in 1994. Now, this prize is an award uh, which is awarded for excellence in newspaper journalism, literary achievements, and musical competition. Kevin Carter had found a great worldly success in his photography career. He had made a name for himself. How good's that? Sadly, though, just over a year after Carter took this photo, he took his own life. The things he had seen in Sudan haunted him, The pain that he saw overrode the joy that he felt in life. His success meant nothing, and it didn't change anything. Today in our passage in 1 Samuel 14, we can see how worldly success can be tragic, but that having a clear conviction about who God is produces a great expectation of God, which then calls us, his people, to strive for gospel success over worldly success. In our story so far, we have seen that the people of Israel wanted a king, and they wanted a king like everyone else. So God gave them a king like everyone else. God gave them Saul. And we saw that while Saul was a king like everyone else, he wasn't doing the best job as that, uh, best job of what he should be doing, which was to follow God. He takes matters into his own hands rather than trusting in God. And all in all, the picture that is being painted of Saul so far is not super flattering. Saul has had and continues to have great successes as a king, but we are given a decidedly unoptimistic picture of him. He seems not so much a wicked person, but a foolish, impatient and frustrated one. 
Now, I have a question for you all, and it involves a little bit of audience participation. I'll need you to pop your hand up if you have ever left anything to the last minute. My hand's up too, yes. Uh, I want you to pop your hand back up if it has had anything to do with study, if you've left something to do with study to the last minute. Okay. Uh, there are some very organised people here. I thought I may have been the only one. Uh, so when times are tough and you've got an assignment due, where do you turn? I certainly hope it's not Wikipedia. When a due date is looming, we do tend to take shortcuts. And rather than looking for a good book or a reputable site, I don't know about you, but I choose Wikipedia, which, according to teachers everywhere, is a big no-no. Personally, I think that Wikipedia is pretty accurate, uh, but you know, we'll leave that up for discussion later. Now, I have a personal anecdote to do with this, uh, but it has a disclaimer, which is do not try this at home. When I was much younger, uh, in primary school, I had an assignment to do on Greek mythology. Procrastination was my middle name, uh, and so I left it to the last minute. The night before it was due, I, panicking, decided that it was time to get on with this assignment, after a quick game of Age of Mythology. Uh, I somehow managed to convince myself that playing a game that dealt with aspects of mythology would be helpful and productive. Funnily enough, it actually was. Uh, I discovered that the game had little snapshots of information about various aspects of mythology. And so, in playing the game, I was actually able to complete the assignment. A little bit of a procrastination flex, but it's not very helpful. It didn't encourage me to break the habit of procrastination. And I didn't actually learn anything in doing the assignment, and I was lucky to pass it as well. If I'd read the recommended books and actually done some research, I could have learnt new things and got a much better mark. In our story, times are pretty tough for Saul at this point, and he is under much more dire circumstances than having an assignment due the next day. They are facing off against the Philistine army with 600 people. And if you remember from last week, we had this picture uh, from Lord of the Rings at Helm's Deep. That's still the situation that we're in. So I'm sure that things felt dire. And so Saul thinks back over the history of Israel and remembers that God has delivered his people out of many situations and relies on him. You would hope that Saul would do this, but he doesn't. We know that Samuel has left Saul because of Saul's impatience, as we heard last week. And so who do we find Saul with now? If you have a look at verse 3 in chapter 14, we see that Saul is with Ahijah who is from Eli's line. If we continue to think back a few more weeks, we'll remember that Eli was God's priest, but he mucked up and his family was rejected by God. And it's kind of ironic that uh, Saul is getting advice from a priest of Eli's line who was rejected by God. But hey, he's wearing the priestly robe, he's in the priestly line, so hopefully Saul will listen to what is said. Spoiler alert, uh, Saul continues his behaviour of being impatient and not relying on God. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had a task to do, but not having all the information? And so you're waiting for a call or waiting for a little piece of advice to tell you what to do, but then things start happening and so you need to make a snap decision. It doesn't always end well, does it? And that's kind of what Saul is doing here. In verse 18, Saul sees things happening and he starts off by making a good choice. He calls for the ark of God. 
But then in verse 19, things start to happen. And what does Saul do? He tells the priest to withdraw his hand. He takes matters back into his own hands and he goes into battle. He almost had a change of heart to be a king who relies on God, but he didn't. And you'll notice that in verse 23, it isn't Saul who saves Israel, but God. God started the battle through Jonathan at the start of our passage, and he ended it, saving Israel. Saul just gets caught up for the ride. Because Saul is relying on himself and trusting in his Wikipedia research, rather than actually listening to God and what God's plan is, he also makes a silly oath that the army cannot eat until the evening or until he is avenged on his enemies. A truly rash and arrogant thing to do. And it put the life of his son on the line because of a lack of a communication. Saul takes steps to trust in God's plan, and he even builds his first altar to the Lord. But ultimately, he ignores God and trusts himself. And we see that God's plan continues even without Saul. And even though Saul succeeds in battle, it is still attributed to God, because God is the one who saves. And despite Saul's victories and successes as a king, which we can see in the last couple of verses of chapter 14, this chapter seems uncertain at best about Saul. Saul not trusting in God is not a good thing. And we see that Saul almost takes his son's life because of this silly oath. So how often do we ask God to act or to reveal something to us, but then we do what we want instead of waiting and seeing what God would have us do? Saul inquires of God in verse 37. He gets no answer, and so he essentially flips a coin to see who has sinned. It's a little more technical than that. But in essence, it's drawing lots to get a yes or no answer from God. Throughout the Bible, God has proven himself to be trustworthy and worth relying upon. Saul would have heard about the greatness of God and how he has saved his people on many occasions, getting them out of Egypt, uh, getting them into the promised land. Uh, But despite this, he does not wait to see God's plan. He doesn't want to listen to God, which is also apparent by the fact that Samuel, who's God's prophet, does not actually appear in this chapter at all. Saul's success as a king and his military feats are not worth praise in this chapter. What he's focused on are the consequences of his actions when he relies on himself. God's people are dependent on God's word for life and sustenance. When we ask God a question, we should read his word, discern what he has to say to us, and rely on him rather than ourselves. God's wisdom is much greater than ours. He won't let us down. Now, Saul has a pretty bad rap. Uh, But we're going to have a little look at the other major character in this chapter, Saul's son, Jonathan. And here we see a much different picture. Have you ever heard the saying, being at the right place at the right time? Yeah, a few people? I hope so. I've got a few pictures which I think illustrate this nicely. Our first one, pretty self-explanatory, someone's managed to get a photo of a moth over Mother's Day, so it says, Moth Day. Right place, right time. Uh, The Office, Dwight is yelling, are you there? Netflix asks, are you there at the same time? Right place, right time. A sign to the moon, pointing to the moon. Again, right place, right time. Great feat of photography, capturing a small dog sitting still, but also uh, with their face looming through the wine glass. Right place, right time. Scott takes a picture at Scott's head with the sign pointing to Scott's head. Right place, 
right time. This gentleman has weird eyes, right place, right time. Uh, son giving people a great haircut, right place, right time. Uh, a family lost their dog and then a few years later decided that they want to adopt another. The dog that was brought to them was their dog, right place, right time. He is risen with Shrek rising above the building. And then my favourite, a broken cup with oh no popping out uh, and letting us know how the cup feels. The saying the right place and at the right time kind of implies an element of luck, doesn't it? And that's why I like these pictures, because we all know that pictures online have a very small degree of luck involved. So you'll probably notice quite a few of the pictures that I've showed have no degree of luck at all, and much more emphasis on a photographer being clever with their photography skills, which I think nicely illustrates Jonathan at the start of our passage. Jonathan has a clear conviction of who God is, which creates a great expectation of God. Remember our picture of the armies? This is what Saul and Jonathan were up against. Saul made rash decisions, but Jonathan acts differently. He and his armour carrier head over towards the Philistine camp. Between two rocky crags, not a very advantageous position. What is amazing is Jonathan's conviction about who God is. Have a look at verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armour, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Wow. Jonathan does not put limits on God. His radical faith means that he is placing himself in a position to be used and then letting God do the rest. And so what happens? Jonathan and his armor bearer place themselves in a position to be used and God works. The Philistines welcome Jonathan and his armor bearer into their camps, a sign from God that he has given them into their hands. And they kill 20 people and cause chaos and panic, which then leads to Saul joining the fray and God saving Israel. How powerful is God? He's so powerful that we cannot even comprehend it. And how great is Jonathan's conviction of who God is? Do we have that same level of conviction of who God is? God has a plan and we can trust in that plan even when we don't know the details. It means that we can put ourselves in a position to be used and trust that God will work. When was the last time you did something and said, hey, maybe God will do a thing here? It's radical. I know that when I pray and I ask God to do things, I ask for specific things. And this is fine and it's a good thing because God does work in specifics. But God is also so much greater than we can even imagine. So why not pray that God will do what he does And it may be that the Lord will work for us, like Jonathan says. Knowing who God is and how powerful he is means that we can have a great expectation of God, that he will work powerfully for his kingdom. This may mean stepping out of your comfort zone. I can't imagine that Jonathan and his armor bearer were very comfortable approaching the Philistine camp. But they knew who God is. They trusted and have faith that God would use the circumstances for his glory. This is an attitude for us to embrace and learn from. We all like being comfortable, but we can trust that God will use the situations where we are uncomfortable for his glory. So don't be afraid to talk about the fact that you're at church on a Sunday to your school friends or work colleagues. Or don't be afraid to catch up with someone and read the Bible together. 
God will grow his kingdom, and it is so good that he includes us in his plans. So get to know God more, read his word, and pray. Discover more about him every day, and allow him to sustain you, allow him to work in you. Be brave, and trust that God will do great things as you rely on him and trust in him. Throughout our passage, uh, there has been a great contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Saul is a king who shows us that worldly success can be tragic. His line will not continue to rule, which seems unfair when we see Jonathan's great leadership qualities and his reliance on God. Faith implies dependence on God. And the failings of human kings points to a need for God to give his people an eternal king, who is God, who is Jesus. Even David, who was God's chosen king after Saul, fails dramatically. But God's plan continues and points towards Jesus, who is the perfect king forever. God's people need to look to Jesus to set our course and to fulfill and satisfy us, because any other way is futile. If we rely on things or people other than Jesus, it's kind of like this. Uh, On his way to work every day, a man walks past a clockmaker's store. Now, he stops every day to set his watch to the clock in the clockmaker's window. The clockmaker inside notices this and decides to start a conversation with the man. When he asks what the man did, the man tells the clockmaker that he's a timekeeper at a nearby factory and that because his watch is faulty, he had to set it every day to get the time right because he had to ring the bell at 4pm to let the factory workers know it was time to go home. The clockmaker responds to him, a little embarrassed, saying, I hate to tell you, but my clock is a little faulty as well. I've been adjusting it to the 4pm bell that I hear from the factory. Saul turning away from God is kind of like this. The times will be fine for a little while, but eventually 4pm could be anywhere in the day, because two broken clocks are being set by each other. When God's people rely on people or things that aren't God, things get out of whack and fail. It may not be an immediate failure, but it will fail. True success is found in relying on God, following his ways, and knowing who he is, and having great expectations of his power and his plan, and acting accordingly. Why don't I pray that we'll do this? Lord, thank you that you are powerful and mighty. Thank you that you are growing your kingdom and that you have a plan for each of us. Help us to know who you are, to be convicted of your power and authority and to act accordingly, trusting that you are sovereign over all. And even when we put ourselves out of our comfort zones for your glory, that you'll be working in us and through us for your kingdom. Amen.